the dress gonna grow in my life once more. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, to sink a mafia boss to the bottom of the sea, these are the people who can set you exactly. up. Exactly. Welcome to Howard PCA. This is the podcast where we are trying as best we can to talk about what's good and right and beautiful and believable and awesome and incredible about the PCA. Having all the feels, ignoring some of the other things as best we can, like I said, not always. So uh, my name is Doug Servan. I am uh, calling in today from sunny, generally sunny, beautiful Ithaca, New York, where I am here visiting my son, Drew, who is a junior in economics, but his real major is rowing. He, he is on the crew team, and so that's what he cares most about. So it's been fun to hang out with him. Justin, good to see your face, your mustachioed face. Tell me how you're doing, where you're calling in from, what's up? What's up, Doug? I'm calling in from uh, Albuquerque, and uh, yeah, just chilling, man. It's a good day here, good Friday. Glad to be on. It's a good Friday. It's not good mm-hmm. Friday. No, a good Friday. Not yeah, the and Justin, good Friday. You're, uh, you're wearing a Dodgers hat? I am. Any particular reason? Well, you know, we're in the middle of the playoffs, Doug, so uh, my team's down. Needs to win the last two to advance to the World Series. So, uh, yeah, it's a thrilling time to be alive. You've been in that spot before and won last year. We did. What do you think is going to happen this year? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, lightning twice, but I, I think we have a good chance with our two pitchers going the next two games. So Matt Scherzer. Max Scherzer's going. You know where he went night. to school? Where did he go to college? I'm guessing he went to Missouri, Doug. He went to Mizzou. I would yeah. think he's the number one Mizzou athlete of all time. He might just be that, more than Anthony Peeler. That's your guy. That's your guy, Doug. Peeler didn't have a real awesome career after. Well, he played for the Lakers. So yeah. You like him? Okay, we have a special guest today. Uh, his name is Greg Johnson. Greg is the pastor at Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis and has just had a book come out called Still Time to Care. And some people may have heard of him. Maybe. So, Greg, so glad to have you on our podcast. Thanks for joining us on this uh, Friday, I was going to say Saturday. Why don't you tell us where you're calling in from? What are you doing? What's up? Yeah, I'm here in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I'm a condo chilling with a couple cats, have the day off today. And, uh, but it's, uh, you know, sun has been coming out a little bit after a few cloudy days. So, uh, so yeah, I'm well. And do you have a favorite baseball team? Oh, well, that would be the Cardinals. Um, it's the only one I know. <laughs> Yes, and oh, we were so close to beating the Dodgers. So close, but Ah, so far. It was a momentous season where it just looked like everything was terrible, and then they won, what, 17 games in a row? Yeah. It was awesome, because I was in St. Louis 
watching baseball games in public places with people that know baseball. It was so wonderful. Um, so thankful the season ended that way. And I really wish we would have closed the deal, but it was still great. Okay. But that's what we're here to talk about. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're here to like delve into Greg and what's been going on with you. But first, why don't you give us a little how you got into the PCA story? We like to ask everybody that journey of faith and then movement and calling into this specific little thing that we're all in. Yeah. You know, I, I was raised atheist. Um, my dad was a senior executive in the federal government, grew up in the DC area. Um, and I was, I was the gay kid, um, also an atheist. And then late in high school started to have a moral awakening in which I started to realize that, that, that there really was good and evil in the world. There had to be, it was the only way we could live. And, uh, and ended up basically, you know, sliding down the slippery slope of the moral argument for the existence of God. And so in college, I was looking for a religious group to tell me what it's all about. Cause I didn't know anything about Christianity. I, but I, I, I suspected that, um, that there may be truth there. And uh, ended up, uh, you know, getting into a, a what today's crew Bible study. It was Campus Crusade back then and was led to Christ by a guy who went to a PCA church, Trinity PCA in Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, that was the first church I ever went to as a Christian and worshipped. Um, and uh, then was baptized a couple of years later. And then a year, year and a half or so after that, went to Covenant Seminary because I had not only become a Christian, but by that point I had become reformed as well. And, uh, and you know, it was really, my pastors really encouraged me to go to Covenant um, because of the community there, because of the, the kind of well-rounded, gospel-centered ethos, the, the missional focus, um, with the Schaefer Institute, for example, and... Uh, really thrived at covenant. You know, I, I mean, I was really, um, God really did a lot there to free me from some of the shame that, that I had carried and, uh, made me fall in love with the church. You know, I, I started as an intern at Memorial Pres in St. Louis in the fall of 1994 and 27 years later, I'm still, I'm still here. You know, I was an intern and then I was, uh, running a study center for three years out of the church um, and then was assistant pastor and then associate pastor and then kind of filled the interim pulpit thing. And then uh, in 2016 became the lead pastor. So it's amazing that you went from non-Christian atheist to seminary. How long did that take? Two years, three years? That was, that was about four years. Four from, years probably, from atheist, it was probably a five-year five year plan. Yeah really the junior year of, of junior year of, of high school is when I really started questioning my atheism. And so, um, you know, I would say within six years, I had gone to, to, from, from an atheist to being like the star pupil in Dan Doriani's Greek and exegesis class. I, uh, I listening to you, I, I started listening to the book, Greg, I, th I think it's like only available on audible right now or something. I don't know. Right. But, it's available um, on Audible and then Kindle and uh, hardcover released December 7th. 
Yeah. So just uh, being, you know, reminding, hearing your story again, but then re- being reminded that you went to seminary, just like not necessarily with a call to go to seminary, but to like learn the Bible as that's a unique way to end up at seminary for sure. Yeah. I didn't I love- plan on, on going into ministry. I, I did think that I might want to do a PhD and teach in a Christian college, kind of that 100 level religion class that everybody has to take. Um, because I, I felt like I had a perspective as somebody who knew and grew up outside of the church, unfamiliar with Christianity. I, I felt like a lot of things I would read in the Bible were way more profound to me than they seemed to be to people being raised in the church. And so, uh, so yeah, that, that, but, but, you know, when I got into a PhD program and looked at other people who were called into academia, you know, that's where I realized I had a real heart for God's people and for shepherding long-term um, and not just teaching one class over and over again to people who have to take the class. You know, Greg, my wife, Julie, didn't grow up in church either. And so I remember when we were both in college, we were sophomores, and she, for the first time, was reading the Bible, and she started with the Gospels, and she would call me almost every day with, like, some profound insight or question. One of them was, when she finished all four Gospels, she said, you know, it's amazing that all of these are about the same thing, but they're from different perspectives. That would make sense because they're different people reporting the same event. And it was like this basic thought that I had, I had grew up in the church, so it didn't ever occur to me, but she was so excited so many times about things that I had just taken for granted. So I totally agree with you that when you come at it from a totally different perspective, as an outsider, it is a big difference. Now that can be negative difference, but it also can be positive difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great for me. And, and even just as I talk with a lot of people who did grow up in the church, who have a similar, similar story to mine. Um, I, I, I have to say, I think it was far easier for me to see the love of Jesus having grown up outside the church than, than some like gay or same-sex attracted kids being raised in the church who just hear nothing but shame. And so I, I actually think I probably ended up slightly emotionally healthier for having started Christianity late. And, and that's a, a, a sad thing, um, I think, something we really need to work on. Okay, so we're begging the question a little bit about this same-sex attracted, you threw out the word gay already. So how do you want to enter into that part of the story on the narrative <laughs> of what we're talking about here? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. What, what story is there to tell? <laughs> well, so you have a book out, and it's about this topic, and it's, you're personally involved in it, and it's yeah. the PCA. I don't know how many strings we got here. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, the book, it's uh, still time to care. What we can learn from the church's failed attempt to cure homosexuality is is really a book that had never been written before. This book doesn't exist. When my editor first saw it, he was like, I don't even know what category to put this in because it's part of its church history. Part of it is cultural history. Part of it is biblical exegesis. Part of it is systematic theology. Part of it is pastoral care. And part of it is really interesting to learn about C.S. Lewis's gay best friend, Arthur. And so it's just, it's just, you know, 
all this fascinating story because, you know, I, I, you know, when I was a new Christian, I, I, you know, I didn't know the the language of same-sex attraction did not yet exist. It was developed later um, by the reparative therapists. Um, But, um, but you, I knew I was, was homosexual or gay or whatever you called it. But then, you know, within a few years, I was reading all of these kind of conversion therapy, reparative therapy, ex-gay narrative books and began to think of myself as, as an ex-gay. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, many conversations I had with people, but every time I, I said that I used to be gay, I felt like I was lying because if gay was a lifestyle, I had never been in a gay lifestyle. I, I was a virgin. And uh, I mean, because I came of age, age, age during the, the HIV crisis and sex meant death, you know, so I was terrified even before I was a Christian. And yet if gay was an orientation, mine hadn't shifted at all. Um, my life orientation had shifted, but, you know, my, my attractions didn't switch to female. And so, um, you know, I kind of distanced myself after a number of years from the ex-gay movement um, because I did feel this insincerity. Um, it's like a kind of, uh, um, it's kind of like we, we, we talk about coming out of homosexuality. And people, it would be a form of equivocation because what all our straight audiences would hear is, I'm now straight. But that wasn't the case. I was still a six on the Kinsey scale. Um, I'd say I used to be gay, but now I'm not anymore, though I do still sometimes struggle. Uh, But the reality is there hadn't been a change. And so, you know, by the time you get into the 2010s, you know, we've all sort of figured this out and we're trying. And so that's when we, we dropped the, the ex-gay label in the, the 2000s and switched to, to speaking of same sex attraction because it was more honest than saying we were ex-gays. Um, and uh, and then, in, you know, and, and, you know, 700,000 Americans between the ages of 18 and 59 went through conversion therapy and many of them in Christian ex-gay ministries, some with secular reparative therapists. And the best numbers we have show that it was over a 99% failure rate at changing sexual orientation. Um, And so in 2012, you know, when the president of Exodus International, uh, Alan Chambers, admitted that Exodus affiliates had seen a 99.9% failure rate, then, you know, that whole movement collapsed within a year. And the question is, what comes after that? Because for 40 years, we had this ex-gay narrative that you you stop being gay and you're in the process of becoming straight. And yet we now know that that is very rare. That's a very rare story. Um, And even some who people think have that story don't. I know of one very popular woman author who calls herself a former lesbian, but she's still attracted to women. She um, avoids that question and complains when people ask it. But uh, because she's making it all about identity, which is what the ex-gay movement did. Um, so, yeah, the question is, what what do we do now? How do you care for um, non-straight kids who grow up in your church? You know, every week, a week does not go by that a pastor in the PCA does not call me or ask to Zoom because their child or an elder's child or a child in their church has come out as gay or lesbian or transgender. And they're like, I don't know what to do. And uh, and there's been a lot of work done over the last decade 
to help us learn what to do. And I'm trying to help the church. It's really, the book is really my gift to the church to help the church understand how we got in this spot we're in now and how we can move forward. So you talked there about the question of identity with the X game movement. Like what, how would you like to see that conversation switch or change? Um, Yeah. Well, I think we need to quit policing people's terminology. Um, You know, that has been a major flaw. You're, you're not going to convince a 25 year old gay kid that he's not really gay. He's just struggling with same sex attraction. That's not his generation. Gay just means orientation. And so, um, you know, even though a, a, a baby boomer will hear in the word gay a whole lot more, they're hearing bathhouses and rainbow flags and pride fest and, and there's nothing wrong with my sexuality and a revisionist sexual ethic. And, and so there's a, a difficulty because young people today, for them, gay is the opposite of straight. And so right. we've got to stop policing their language. When you tell them you can't be gay and be a Christian, they will only hear one thing, which is that you are not qualified to receive the gospel. And uh, woe to the one through whom that comes. You know, we, we've really got to learn how to speak their language uh, with our biblical categories. Um, and but, but part of the challenge is, is we are still, you know, we have elders within our churches who all saw an ex-gay testimony at some point where the guy at the end brought out, you know, paraded out the wife and the kids. And, and so there's this confidence that, no, if you're progressing in Christ, then your temptations, your sinful temptations will switch from male to female. And, uh, and I don't know that that's really what we should be aiming for. That's aiming kind of low because God's standard is not sinful heterosexual temptation. It's, it's holiness. And, uh, and, but, but so many people have heard these ex gay narratives, even though 70% of those marriages ended in divorce. Um, and, and when they'd end these testimonies in marriage, you didn't hear about the gay pornography. You didn't hear about the struggle the same sex attracted spouse may have to not visualize somebody of the same sex while they're making love to their spouse. Um, you know, you, you didn't hear about all the difficulty. It, it ended with these happy implied, now I'm straight, which they never were. So, um, but yeah, you know, I want, what I want to see happen is, is really a gospel narrative that says, you know, sin isn't just what we do. It's what we are. It's a condition we have. We sin because we're sinners and we remain sinners in this life. We don't, you know, don't make this all about identity. You know, we are sinners in practice because our, our, our fallen nature, our indwelling corruption does not go away in this life. And, uh, and we need to simply accept the fact that the grace of God covers that, that, that our shame is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, which means it, in union with Christ, it, it means it's as if, as if you had fed the 5,000 and you raised Lazarus from the dead and you always did what pleased the Father because in union with Jesus, all of his righteousness is yours. Um, and that's the kind of grace that when that sinks into your heart, and it, I mean, churches and families have a gospel culture. You know, that's the kind of grace that can actually make somebody willing to do the hard work of walking with God in, in holiness and obedience. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. And how, how does that look for you personally, Greg? Uh, people may or may not know your story, but you, uh, how, how have you worked that out as you've walked with Jesus? 
You know, um, for me, it's looked like celibacy. There have been several seasons in which I have, you know, sought God and counsel with others as to whether or not he would want me to pursue a life. And I have never felt any peace at all with that. Um, and in terms of my sexual orientation, it would be a challenge. Um, but, uh, that is calling that God does give some people though. And, and, and I've seen some marriages really thrive in that. Uh, especially when they're completely open and honest from day one and when their biggest priority is to serve God first and their spouse second. Um, but, uh, but that's not been my calling. Uh, so I am 49 years old, still a virgin, got covenant eyes on my phone. Like every Christian guy should have, um, you know, I, you know, my, my struggle with sexual temptation is absolutely no different from any straight guy. You know, it's that there are people that one sees that uh, that you try to turn away from. You try not to save up that image for later recall. You try, uh, you know, to avert your gaze. You you put covenant eyes on your phone. There are places you don't go because of what you might see. There are billboards you don't look at. Um, there's accountability. There's, you know, every Thursday with, uh, an elder of mine since 2002. So it's been almost two decades now for accountability and he gets my covenant eyes. Um, you know, so like sexual temptation looks no different for me than, than anyone else. It's the same struggle with, with, as any other guy is going to face. Uh, it's just different individuals who might tempt, but the, the, the struggle is no different. The larger part, um, and why I find the language of, of sexual orientation more helpful uh, is because the, the bigger part of sexual orientation for many of us is not that we experience sexual temptation to the same sex. That's you fight that just like just like any other guy has to fight his sexual temptations. Uh, but the, the larger half is the absence of sexual attraction toward toward the opposite sex, because that in my case has been something that has really kept marriage out of reach for me. And that's meant uh, managing loneliness, finding ways to build church family uh, and, and, and intentional community because the thing any same sex attracted believer is going to struggle with, you know, sin is not going to be sexual sin is not likely to be their biggest struggle. Their biggest struggles are likely to be with shame and with a, um, sense of loneliness and isolation and a sense that they're constantly scrutinized by Christians. Um, those are the big three sexual sin might be a fourth one after those three. And so, you know, for me, I've got my best friend and I have been grabbing drinks every Thursday night for about 16, 17 years at this point, I think, um, I've got a group of guys that I vacation together with Christian brothers, um, and, uh, you know, got, um, you know, this elder that I meet with, I have a family that moved to St. Louis in 2002 to be in or three, to be involved in my ministry who've had me in their home hundreds of times. Um, you know, it's, um, but, but it's definitely intentional act of building long-term relationships in which I am known and loved and which I can give and receive love. I think that's so beautiful. And you've been a great example on that. We're going to get more to the PCA here in a second, but uh, what's the general mindset for you? Like in the 
non-Christian gay community, I mean, I, they got to think you're crazy. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, you know, there was a weekend in 2018 when we were hosting the Revoice Conference when um, both uh, right-wing um, Christian radio folks and left-wing LGBT activists both threatened to picket the church at the same time. It would have been a bloodbath. I mean, we were calling the police saying, this is not going to be good, guys. And thankfully, neither showed up. Um, but yeah, we've been denounced. I've been denounced in the LGBTQ media here in St. Louis for promoting what they consider um, conversion therapy 2.0, which basically just means um, celibacy, <laughs> um, which they see as mandatory celibacy and therefore unfair. Um, and, uh, yeah, but at the same point, um, and, you know, we hosted an Exodus ministry for years. And uh, even though it didn't really do conversion therapy, it certainly had some of those, some of that ethos. And so our church had a history that way as well. But, but you know, I've looked at all of those things as opportunities for gospel ministry. You know, when we were denounced in the, the local LGBT media, um, I reached out to the guy doing the loudest shouting, who is a um, ethical humanist minister um, at a church, well, at a religious organization uh, uh, about a mile or two away, and reached out to him and, and had drinks. And he asked me, like, so why are you a Christian? And I was able to talk to him about how, you know, I found the gospel. I found Jesus to be absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, we've had opportunities to host artists in our, in our arts venue, uh, who are, I mean, if you're reaching artists, you're reaching into the gay community. And so, um, we've been able to host various, uh, LGBT artists and offer them hospitality. And I remember after one show, um, one of the actresses, um, you know, our, our, our youth pastor was actually running the bar that night because just to, to keep eye on what was actually happening. We had the pastors run the bar each night. We give away free drinks um, to people. And uh, and one of one actor, she just looked at him and he, she said, I don't understand why you were being so kind to us because I know what your church believes. And he was able to say, you know, um, we're doing this because of what we believe. You know, it's when we were God's enemies that he loved us. And so he calls us to reach out to people who are different from us and to love them. And so uh, it was an interesting talk. They talked for about 45 minutes. And at the end of the day, this transgender artist was walking away saying, telling him that it was the first time she had ever felt like a Christian who listened to her. Um, yeah, that's, that's opportunity. Um, yeah. The, the hospitality calls us, the gospel calls us to hospitality and make room. And your church has continually tried to make room, especially for the LBGQT community. And the there's been other things that have happened and as a result of that, that you've and your session have had to struggle through the wisdom of, you know, what and how and what to do. So I think we'd like to talk about a couple of those things as we head into the break. Um, you know, first the things that kind of you've host 
hosted at the chapel and maybe kind of we're not here to you know interrogate we're just here to ask the question of like what is the what has been the mission of of that work and what you hope to see and then also you know the relationship that you have with revoice like to explain a little bit about what revoice is um and revoice does um they just finished up their conference last week um and so yeah some of that kind of stuff this podcast is brought to you by storied publishing we publish books with redemptive themes check out our growing list of titles at storied.pub let us help you take your book from idea to a finished product that you can hold in your hands contact us today at storied.pub which is contained in the scriptures of the old and new now everybody whisper yeah, the chapel, you know, the chapel we founded around 2007 because we had a, um, we had a, a, an English Gothic chapel, stunningly beautiful stone building with wood ceiling and stained glass. It was beautiful space that, that we had not used in decades. And, uh, and, and it was actually, I, I think it was actually Craig Dunham who first raised the possibility of using it for some sort of art space. Um, when he was an intern at Memorial a hundred million years ago. Um, and, uh, but uh, eventually we, we got a team of the congregation together. We built up this plan that we would uh, think of this sort of as the court of the Gentiles, you know, and that it's a, a space specifically for non-Christians where we as Christians serve and love non-Christians. And so the only kind of artists we want to serve are not believers. Um, we want to serve people who aren't on the same page, who don't believe what we believe, who maybe view Christians as a threat or a danger because there was this wall of hostility and suspicion between, you know, Christians and, and, and the art scene. Um, and both sides had been putting bricks in that wall for years and years and years. Um, Christians viewed artists as crazy pagans who, you know, always looking for some shock value uh, and, 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 and artists felt judged by Christians. And so we decided we can't tear down that wall, but we can start removing some bricks because if we can actually love someone well, long-term, and these are often long-term relationships, uh, people whose viewpoints are very different and they know we're Christians and they know what we believe and they know that we love them and we love their fans you know, we're going to give away the drinks. We'll, we'll provide all the volunteers. And if there's any door fee, you take it. The church doesn't take a nickel. This is hospitality. And, uh, and a lot of people didn't understand outside the church what it is to do hospitality ministry. When you do hospitality ministry, you are not controlling or dictating what the person you've invited into your space says or does. There may be people you don't invite into your space if they're going to, you know, uh, uh, incite violence or something, but, uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we only serve real artists, not just somebody with a hobby, but people who, because they're in St. Louis, they're not likely going to be able to make a living as an artist, even though maybe they have a BFA and a fine arts degree. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's been really successful in building up so much goodwill in the community. I remember one new age artist, he was, a I can't even remember what instrument he 
played. It was some strange instrument, but it was, it was kind of a folk music kind of thing. Total new age guy. Um, but on the stage, he packed the house and, and each night on the stage, he said, Hey guys, I just want you to know the people who run this venue are Christians and I'm not a Christian, but if you are, or if you ever find yourself looking for a church, I want you to go to this church and check it out because there is so much love in this space. You know, that's, that's tearing down a, a wall of suspicion um, as a pre-evangelism, building relationship in the community so that when an artist or one of their fans has a life crisis and they begin thinking through 15 possible directions that their life might go, maybe Christianity would be one of the 15 that they would consider. Yeah. Where right. before it might not have been. Hmm. You know, we've done the same thing at uh, City Press and OKC, and it's just terribly misunderstood by a few, although lots of people totally get it, you know, and it just depends on who and then what soundbite they get and how much interference you want to run. But it, it can cause problems. It's just easier not to do it. But I, we, we just really pressed in to say, like, we're going to host people and not police every single... Now, we're going to tell them, hey, you're in a church, you know, just realize that this could go bad for us more than it could go bad for you. And we've always just been mostly had, you know, respectful conversations and it was totally fine. So I, I get it. But that's not what everyone else thinks, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we definitely took some heat for some of the things we've hosted, but, uh, and there've been times where we've had to go to our presbytery and ask them to, Hey, show us where we're wrong, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, but you know, it's not something we're going to stop, you know, we're, we're, we have a mission from God and because somebody's going to misrepresent it or misunderstand it, that doesn't mean, you know, that, that, that we're going to stop that because, you know, if you know, it's like uh, I think it was Billy Sunday when somebody criticized his. It was a woman who criticized his evangelistic methods, and his response to her was that I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> and so, when you're dealing with a highly secular place like the Central Quarter of St. Louis, I mean, Washington University is across the street. It's thirty percent Jewish. Um, you know, it's a very secular school. Um, you know, you, you can't just, you know, throw on a potluck and have people come. You've got to really go out and serve people who might feel marginalized by the church and, and love them. Can you then explain to our listeners what in the world Revoice is about? (laughs) Yes, I would love to. Um, Revoice was a conference founded in 2018 uh, by Nate Collins, who was a a PhD in New Testament from um, Southern Seminary in Louisville. And uh, he founded it with um, a couple other folks who were PCA folks. Uh, Nate was Southern Baptist. And Nate had actually been one of the keynote speakers at the last Exodus International Conference back in 2013, uh, when Alan Chambers announced that Exodus was closing. The next speaker was actually Nate Collins, who started to pick up the pieces and even then started to to chart out what a path for care would look like. 
Um, and, and he decided to, to launch this conference specifically to try to revoice the conversation uh, from being about orientation change to instead being about Christians thriving within the church, you know, Christians who are oriented toward the same sex, um, thriving within churches that hold to the biblical sexual ethic. Um, you know, when a piano is out of tune and really badly out of tune, uh, you have it revoiced to bring out the beauty of the sound. And what we were hearing and seeing in so much Christian writing uh, and ministry in this area was just rehashed ex-gay stuff, um, you know, focusing on on identity and not being open and honest about your orientation and pretending it's going to change and hiding and shame-based stuff and just a lot of mess. And uh, even though most of those ministries had shut down, that's still what was out there. And so the idea was to pr try to provide a more positive vision um, for how the same-sex attracted Christian can thrive within churches that hold to the biblical sexual ethic. And it's not a PCA organization. It's a non-denominational um, 501c3 tax-exempt organization. And, and one of the beauties of it is when I, I just got back from Revoice 21 in, down in Dallas at a big non-denominational church down there. And, um, and it was fantastic because you've got such a spread of people. You've got, you know, Wesleyans and you've got Baptists and you've got Charismatics and you've got Evangelical Roman Catholics and you've got Eastern Orthodox folks and what were all there in, in order to worship God together and learn how to do this. Uh, it was it was incredibly beautiful. Um, you know, Eve Tushnet was one of my favorite speakers, and she and I are theologically on very different ends of the spectrum. But she was a Jewish atheist lesbian who, um, around age twenty, fell in love with Jesus and was baptized Roman Catholic. <laughs> and uh, but uh, coming from her background, though, she really is in love with Jesus and she trusts him as her savior. And, uh, she's got a book coming out as well that I'm, I'm previewing right now. It looks really interesting. Um, but yeah, just the fact that, that it's, it's the most ecumenical Christian group in the U S I suspect, because what we all have in common is that we believe what the Bible says about sex and we're not straight. So <laughs> yeah. What I think is, you know, and we got taught this at Covenant, Craig, was we want to be out there telling people about Jesus in the culture, not just inviting them into church. We do that too, right? But we want to be out there. So it, I think it's so cool. And this is what baffles me as to why people uh, misunderstand this so much, that, that this organization isn't the PCA, but, but we're sort of helping it and leading it. And that's what we would want to shape it. It would be so much different if it wasn't connected to us. Now there are going to be mistakes. And of course we're not controlling every, what everyone says or thinks, but still, wouldn't you want this emphasis to come out of us and an understanding of the church and under the gospel rather than hand it over to just everyone else. That to me yeah is like the thing where if you're going to say there are mistakes made, sure. 
but this is who we want to lead something like this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And I, my experience is I've, I've known people who put on conferences. There's not a person who's put on a bunch of conferences who hasn't at some point regretted putting somebody onto a stage. (laughs) You know, people change their views or some scandal hits or whatever, or they, they, you know, or, um, you know, maybe lobbing bombs and grenades when maybe Mm -hmm. milder speech might, might be more helpful, but, um, but it's wonderful. It is absolutely wonderful. Um, one of the things that discourages me a lot in the PCA is everybody, when I talk to PCA elders and pastors, they always feel a need to tell me that, well, I don't agree with Revoice, but personally I support you and all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, you probably don't know whether you would agree or disagree with Revoice because probably you've read a bunch of discernment blogs from slanderers who make stuff up and who don't ever actually call to interview any of us. So, uh, it's been a, you know, what was it? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, was, um, um, who was it? Who said Mark Twain, I think who said that, uh, uh, you know, a lie gets halfway around the globe before the truth can get its pants on. And so that was a big thing in 18. That was just devastating. And, uh, but, but yeah, I, I've, really uh, enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I remember in Revoice 18, I was just, you know, we were just hosting it at Memorial and, and, and of course it's a hundred year old building. And so I was kind of going around making sure water fountains weren't leaking. There wasn't, you know, a pipe burst that there was some level of air conditioning in the building, just kind of doing hovering, just trying to fix whatever was going wrong as host pastor. And, uh, and so I was out in the narthex of the church and this, this young kid, 20 something in a captain America t-shirt came out and sat down on a couch in our narthex and just began, um, weeping. And I didn't know what to do. So I just sat on the couch next to him, next couch over and, um, and just sat with him. And then, um, after about 10 minutes of weeping, he said it was the first time he had ever felt safe in a church. Hmm. Um, my heart just broke for this kid, but we could offer him that, that somebody who is faithful to God for the first time was able to feel safe in a church. Um, that's a bruised reed that the Lord won't snap. And there are a lot of people who want to snap the bruised reeds, but, um, you know, what I saw was so beautiful. Um, and Eve Tushnet, the, the Catholic speaker, she, um, mentioned afterwards that the thing that struck her most because our congregation and folks from a couple other churches were just, they were fixing breakfast and lunch for people. They were cleaning and restocking bathrooms, making sure people knew where to go because our building is sort of an MC Escher print where there's stairs that go up one way and come down another. And so people get lost. And so we had 50 volunteers or so helping provide and, and for these 350, you know, same sex attractor gay believers, um, who were walking with God. And, and Eve said the thing that touched her most was seeing all of these straight Christians hmm. serving Christians who were same sex attracted. She had never seen that before. She didn't think she would ever see that in a church. Um, it was beautiful. Amen. That's really kind of what one of your like aims is for the book and for your life and ministry 
And one of the things I got that came through so clearly in what I've read of your book so far is just the how much where we sit in the timeline of the history, culture war, how much that impacts the way that we look at and interact with these ideas that to go back and to listen to Lewis or Schaefer before some of this shifted post sixties really is a helpful lens for us on how we might be able to interact with, with these ideas now. Um, and yeah. I found that be really helpful. I don't know. Yeah. Francis Schaefer had, uh, had, uh, in 1968, he received a letter from a European pastor who had seen, I believe it's six different gay men commit suicide. And he was writing to Francis Schaefer, um, asking for counsel and, and Schaefer commented on the, the, the place that the church and the Orthodox church specifically has had in marginalizing gay people. Um, he said, you know, even when they're not practicing homosexuality, they get pushed out to the margins of, of, of Orthodox church life. And he said that I believe is both cruel and wrong. You know, they're very strong words from Schaefer. Uh, for what was happening at that point. Um, but there was this history of, of homophobia that um, was a part of Western culture. It's been a part of almost every culture. When, um, when uh, Schaefer first met um, Jerry Falwell Sr. of the Moral Majority in the 1970s, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, according to Schaefer, at one point, Falwell leaned in and said, and what do you think about homosexuals? And Schaefer did the classic Francis Schaefer thing, which he thought for a moment. And he said, well, I find it a very complicated issue. And Falwell shot back the rejoinder. If I had a dog that did what those people do, I'd put a bullet in it. And there was no humor at all. And on leaving, uh, Schaefer said to his son, this man is disgusting. Because he, you know, Schaefer's Labrie Fellowship was a magnet for, for gays and lesbians who were trying to figure out whether they were Christians, whether they wanted to be Christians, what that was going to require of them, and how they were ever going to be able to do it. Um, and uh, it was known as a magnet. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot to learn from, from even guys like Billy Graham. He wasn't reformed, but, um, you know, he you know, advocated in the 1970s for the ordination of, of, you know, what he would have called repentant homosexuals, um, provided that they were repentant and walking with God and had the proper training and calling. Um, yeah, there's a history, but, but what happened beginning in the late 1970s, two things, the culture war, starting with Anita Bryant, um, and, and then, you know, uh, the moral majority, uh, set up this war between the Christians and the gays. And, uh, and then the other thing was the ex-gay movement was born and grew very rapidly, uh, promising a, a false narrative of, of change. They, their motto was change is possible, and they meant orientation change by and large, especially early on. And that set up a lot of people to fail because, um, you know, when you're sitting there wondering, God, why am I not changing? They keep telling me I'll change. I'm not changing. And, uh, and it left, led to a lot of people, 
engaging in self-harm, despair, and giving up on Christianity. I've, I've heard stories, just terrible stories. Um, some people in the ex-gay movement did have really good experiences, particularly if they were a sex addict, and that was the main issue they were dealing with, is they could get pastoral support that they weren't getting from their church to help break sex addictions. And uh, some people ended up married with wives and healthy families, um, but but a lot of people got hurt. And sure. But yeah, we're dealing with the aftermath of those two big things, the culture war and, and uh, yeah, the ex-gay movement. And a lot of this comes back to contextualization and how we choose to engage in that in the life of church communities, denominations, and, you know, how we contextualize the gospel um, to people that Jesus loves. And uh, most of what you've articulated with us today centers around those things. And I think your book does a lot of the same kind of work. Um, so we did, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw this yet or not, but the, we're, we're kind of like a timeless in the sense of a podcast. Like we don't necessarily relate to a lot of current events other than like sports and things But the, you know, the SJC just ruled in favor of Missouri Presbytery, um, and declined to process allegations against you. And so Doug and I thought we'd ask, you know, if you had reactions to that. Um, yeah, I've been you know, watching it's been something that. that's been over your head for a long time, man. So, yeah, and I haven't yet seen all the details of whether there's going to be a minority report or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, you know, the record of the case was something like a thousand pages, and uh, and they had dozens, they had scores of pages of mine written on sexuality. And I think if it, it, there was no way that anybody could look at what I've written and conclude that I don't believe that, you know, the sexual temptation to have sex with another guy isn't sinful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm a virgin today because I do think that would be sinful. Uh, and, and I do understand that it's indwelling sin inside of me tapping onto all sorts of longings and emotions that are, that are there, nature and nurture. And, um, and the attempt to paint me as something I'm not, um, has been going on for four years and you don't have to look hard to find out who the ringleaders are. And they've been making false statements about me and misrepresentative statements about me. Um, you know, even suggesting that I'm an unrepentant homosexual, you know, like, um, you know, uh, you know, so, um, I think as in any kind of judicial thing, there, there have to be questions afterwards of, okay, now who has been spinning the false narrative? Who's been sowing the misinformation? Right. Um, certainly there are areas where I could have been more clear in saying things, but, um, nobody was reaching out for clarification. So, um, the fact that this went all the way to the SJC is a shame. It really is a shame. It should not have had to happen. But um, right now in the PCA, it only takes two presbyteries to try to get something to SJC or one complainant within a presbytery. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm relieved, but I do still have some very serious grave concerns um, just because of the amount of misinformation that has been put out there. So, yeah. Yeah, so we're we're sort of at the end of our time, and thank you for being generous. I, we do have a couple non-serious things yeah. left, but 
you know, this misunderstanding part, Greg, has been big because you have been, in my opinion, forthright and you've answered every question. You've always been uh, very gracious. What do you think are the biggest misunderstandings? Can we just hit a couple of those real quick? About me specifically? Yeah, or mm-hmm. whatever that you keep hearing. Let's just say I, I keep hearing that I, that I identify as a gay Christian, which uh, I identify as a gay atheist who fell in love with Jesus and now follows him. You know, that, that's different than, you know, putting that couplet together, though I don't have necessarily a problem with those who do it. I find that older folks get really confused, so I just don't do it. Um, and yet that still keeps getting bantered around. There's people saying that I don't believe in progressive sanctification um, when I absolutely do and teach it. Um, I just don't think that that necessarily means that you're going to start being tempted to have sex with women. Um, that, that could happen, but that's no guarantee. Um, so those are two of the, the big ones. Um, people saying that I don't believe that, that homoerotic temptations are indwelling sin. They say that I think they're morally neutral. I've been hitting this drum for four years saying that's absolutely not what I believe. But, um, yeah, a lot of those just keep going, going around. Mm-hmm. Well, so then what advice would you give the PCA with all that in mind? You know, there are two things that every PCA pastor has to have to to get it. I think Um, one is you need to read my book. I didn't spend a pandemic writing a book for fun. I don't enjoy writing. Um, I'm I'm a good at it, but that doesn't mean it's fun, but uh, you need to understand the context and, and also because there will be affirming people that you that will try to steal your cheap. You also need to be able to answer the affirming arguments for the arguments that people are putting forward for for Christian same sex marriage. Um, you know, Erdman's publishing house is pumping out books advocating for that. And uh, and it's the way many non-denominational churches are, are slowly moving right now. And so my book also uh, will give you what I think are the best arguments against an affirming position and in favor of the biblical sex ethic. But, uh, but my last part is about pastoral care. You've got to know what the real issues are and how not to step on a landmine. The other book that every pastor has to have in his personal library, probably on a shelf right behind his desk, is uh, called um, Guiding Families of LGBT Youth. It's written by Bill Henson, the president and founder of Posture Shift. Um, and, you know, a lot of PCA people will maybe be turned off by the LGBT language, but, um, but he um, is a solid guy. And when you have a kid in your church tell you they're gay, that is the book that you need to look at to know, first, how to have that second very important follow-up conversation uh, in which you say, you know, mom and dad are really sorry that we were not here for you in this. You were dealing with this alone. And we want to know your whole story. And we want to walk with you in this. And, you know, have you ever been bullied? Have you felt safe at church? Have you felt safe at, at school? Have you have you ever tried to hurt yourself? Um, you know, those kinds of questions. And then how to avoid the big pitfalls that so many parents and pastors fall into, you know, the most common one being denial. Like, oh, no, you can't be gay. You just, it'll go away. It's phase. And, and when somebody's getting to the point where they're telling their pastor or their parent this, 
they've been sitting on that in absolute privacy for years and have finally had the bravery to do the most traumatic thing they may ever have to do. Um, and, uh, and at that point, you need to avoid those pitfalls and make sure you're emotionally there for them. And, and then always we have to develop a gospel culture in our churches, in our families, where it's a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus. Um, if the church isn't a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus, there's no other place that is safe. So, um, you know, the, the church has to have a gospel culture where people hear their pastors regularly confessing their own sins in the pulpit and talking about the free grace that clothes us from our inner shame and forgives all our debts. Um, the embrace of God toward his repentant children, uh, where kids are growing up in families, where mom and dad are regularly asking each other for forgiveness and saying they're sorry, and where they're also doing that to their kids when they sin against the kids. Um, you know, where it's a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus. Um, that's our that's our mission as a church uh, in a big way. Um, but yeah, that would be my advice. Make sure you're drinking deeply of the gospel. Don't try to fix people. Don't try to control them. Don't try to micromanage them because they will experience your well-intended efforts as emotional abuse. Um, and we don't want to drive anybody into the hands of the affirming folks uh, because they will lead them to ruin. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Greg. Hard, yeah, amazing. It's hard to follow up that with a... <laughs> but I'm gonna, I'm still gonna. Okay, Greg. We're committed, we're committed, Doug. We're on this quest to figure out who the best PCA is, right? Because there are other organizations uh, that have that same acronym. So today we are discussing, we're going up and down the amazingness. This is the... Um, Portland Cement Manufacturers of America, PCA. If you type in cement.org, you will get PCA since 1916. They, this is the uh, one I saw, Doc. This is the this, one. This is what you saw? Yeah. Okay. Uh, they have a roadmap to carbon neutrality. A more sustainable world is shaped by concrete. Learn more. I, I'm interested. Okay, so uh, so Greg, just your initial reaction on this PCA Portland Cement Association. What do you think? Well, you know, Marge down at the office down there is just a sweetest lady ever, and so I can't speak highly enough of, of her and her efforts to really build the office there. Um, my architecture, uh, uh, I, my undergrad was in architecture, and so uh, I learned all about Portland Cement and how you don't ever want to confuse, you know, a concrete truck from a cement, ready-mix cement truck. Uh, these are very important distinctions. Mm-hmm. Wow, the that's a little important tidbit. So they have a PCA in the news. This would be interesting uh, if we were to make comparisons to ours, but October 21 has, 2021 has what, 10 so they they're the, the site is active. Justin, what do it you is. think? Well, the logo is fairly weak. Uh, um, it's just PCA with a little like cement line. Um, and no, this is the way or anything. No, no, this is the way. No, uh, yeah, no neat. 
tidy like cement buildings behind it or yeah but it is old it's Doug. it's 1916 yeah and you know probably order older than the porsche club of america and probably even poodles so you got to give it some props for the length of time it's been around uh-huh. so sean o'neill charles franklin tom Harmon, lewis bear john reiner katie hartnett jennifer traver if you're hearing this We'd like to hear from you if you think you're the best PCA in the A. Um, we're trying to get a real bead on the best one. <laughs> but so, uh, Justin, if you were just going to give this, you know, our categories are, let me review them, interest to me, interest to others, would I join it, logo, website. These are our, we have five categories with 10 points apiece. What number would you give this? Yeah, so I'm probably sitting in around 35-ish. You know, logo really brings it down a, a bit. I, I like a lot of the other things, actually. Really? I'm giving it a 15. Wow! Doug! Yeah, it's not interesting. I don't think anyone else cares about it. I don't want to join it. Greg just gave us all kinds of touch points for interest. We're, we're in the discernment blog process. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right, so this wraps it up. Greg, I'm so glad to get to talk to you about this. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so glad you're a pastor in the PCA. I really love your book. I didn't get the copy. I was one of the people that ordered it and didn't get it. So now I'm auto-booking it. Uh, and I just was... Uh, the audiobook first intro, first chapter is incredible. So it's so great to hear your story. And then as you lay it all out, not just as a in-person, you know, testimony, but a scholar. Like you researched all this. So this is footnoted. This is like real legit stuff, not just like what Greg thinks. No, this is, this was, I mean, my PhD was in historical theology and that's what this is. And it's got 650 endnotes at the end. Everything is documented. Yeah. It's important. Good work, Greg. I really would encourage everyone to read it and it's going to become even more and more important as we go. So yeah. Thanks for writing it, Greg. You know, Greg, we love you and we pray for you and um, I'm so encouraged by you, but I know it's been hard. So keep up the good work. All right. Thanks guys. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, as always, iHeartPCA is around. If you want to like it, care about it, send it around we'd we'd love that um so we'll catch you next time see ya i hear blogs are banging host is slamming who's gonna live here again rumors are humming controversies are coming Who's gonna live here again? Who's gonna live here? Who's gonna live here? Who's gonna live here again? No more humility, only futility.